Coming up, John Landis joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Yeah, we'll get into it. As she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Now, hello everyone, it's Ileana Douglas. Welcome to our uh, live edition of the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. We're This is very exciting. We're going to do this in two parts because this is our beginning of summer, uh, end of season wrap up for the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. So we are going out with a huge bang. We have it's a big, uh, big show. We have a big show. John Landis is here, one of my cinema heroes. He is a director, a screenwriter, an actor in many films, of course, and a producer. I think we were almost in a movie together. Which one? Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's one of these crazy <laughs> cameos. Of course, he has directed such films as National Lampoon's Animal House, The Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Three Amigos. It keeps going and going. Coming to America, Beverly Hills Cop, Three, of course, Thriller, and most recently, the Mr. Warmth doc, as well as now you're re-releasing Into the Night, right? And Innocent Blood. Into the Night and Innocent Blood. Two very different movies just yes. came out on uh, Blu-ray in in fancy new things yes. from independent distributors. That's a whole thing now. Yes. Where Shout Factory put out uh, Into the Night, which is a universal picture. Uh-huh. But, you know, they have a different, I guess they have a different, oh, great. different audience. And then uh, Warner Brothers Archives. Yes, fantastic. We love them. Boy, they do a, put out They're Innocent great. Blood, and it's gorgeous. Yes, I can't wait to see it. You know, you gave me a signed DVD once. You probably don't remember. You used to have an office on uh, Sunset, right off of Sunset. Right. Maybe in the 90s yeah, or something. Yeah, in the 90s. But it, and they tore that building down. Yeah, well, they, you know, that's because I had an office. Listen, <laughs> I... I had a building. I had a building, my own bungalow. Yes. At Universal Studios for like 23, 24 years. Oh uh, was very happy in that building. Uh-huh. And they tore it down to build Jurassic Park the ride. So oh. rude. Well, so don't, yeah. So luckily, nothing ever happened with that film or anything. <laughs> so yeah, that was one thing. Uh, anyway, I, uh, again, it's, uh, I'm so excited you're here. We recently saw each other at the TCM Film Festival yes. where they played Animal House. And man, did that play like gangbusters. Did you stay for any of the film? For about the first 15, 20 minutes. Are you... Are you surprised at the reaction? I mean, every time that it, it, it's like I've seen it over the years, obviously, from when it first came out when I was a kid. That screening was probably the best screening I think I've ever seen. It was like when it first came out, it was almost even better. It has aged so I, I, well. I missed that part, I guess. Oh, my God. No, they got laughs when I saw it, but it always does. It always plays pretty well. As soon as you have a crowd, Comedies play much better yes. with an audience. But I just felt it was so much fun seeing everyone. And uh, I mean, not only did the, I don't know, each time somebody came on, it was like Karen Allen, Donald Sutherland. It just had like, it, it just was really fun. I feel like movies are, are missing that sense of excitement where we like, who is this? You, you know, you know the people and you have a history with them. Does that make sense? 
Yes. Well, Karen, I mean, Animal House, the majority of the cast, it was their first movie. Right. I mean, Kevin Bacon, Karen, Peter Riegert. Um, Incredible cast. Gosh, I'm trying to think. I mean, obvi- the, the veterans, you know, John right. Vernon and Verna Bloom and Cesare DeNova. Yes. But it had a one, I mean, amazing cast. Tommy Hulse. Uh, yes. You know, Tim Matheson actually was probably the most experienced young person because he'd been a child actor. Right. Working with Lucille Ball. That's right. And the like. <laughs> he had just, he came up to Oregon. He had just finished a TV series called The Quest uh-huh. with Kurt Russell. And they were young go- cowboys in the West. And he had, like, shoulder-length hair. And one of the things I remember when we got up to Eugene was the hairdresser that the studio sent up. I, I, I'm trying to think who the first... I forgot who the first one was, but I said, uh-huh. I want you to cut his hair. It's 1962. And remember, right. that's really the 50s. You know, people forget that. But, yeah. um, you know, it's Kennedy's president. People are still wearing hats and garter belts. <laughs> and... and uh, she did, I mean, this horrendous haircut that looked like kind of, uh, you know, I don't like, I, it's horrible haircut, uh-huh. sort of Frankie Avalon haircut. It was right. just like, what the fuck? No. So then she did another that was worse, and this poor kid was like almost crying. And I said, <laughs> you know what? F- forget it. And then she was very rude. And I remember, I didn't mean it to, but because um, all the young actors were around, and I just said, please don't argue with me. You know, just uh-huh. do a better job. And she says, you can't get him. And I said, okay, you're on the plane. Oh. And I fired her. And I didn't, I, that was the moment I realized the power I suddenly had as yes. this director of a studio picture because all the students, I mean, all the actors, everybody was like, like, like you're the teacher. Yes. It was so weird. Anyway, there was a barber in Eugene. Eugene, Oregon is a college town. It's where mm-hmm. the University of Oregon is. Go Ducks. And uh, there had a two-chair barber shop. The guy had been there since the 30s. Mm-hmm. And old cranky guy. And there were pictures on the, you know, the flat top, the thing, the thing. You know, those haircut pictures? Yeah. From the 40s and 50s. And I said, can you do that haircut? Absolutely. So I had all the Deltas come down to the barbershop, and they all had long hair and beards and everything. And in 15 minutes, with its clippers, <laughs> and the hair, each one was different. And Peter, uh, what's his name? Bruce McGill, who played yes. D-Day, who I'd seen in Richard III in Shakespeare in the Park, who had this great beard and mustache and wild hair. And he said, I'd like to keep the mustache... And I said to the barber, can that be a handlebar? He said, yeah. I said, okay. And, Love it. And he pointed, Bruce pointed to a certain, I forgot what it was called. Uh-huh. The Palisades. It had some weird name. Right, right. And look at his haircut. It's a work of art. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Two minutes, perfect. Um, well, we're going to get to Animal House because there's certain things, of course, that I, I love that I also want to talk about that. But we are going to go back and ask. And You gave me this book, which is amazing. Uh, it's got all these books here. The film that changed my life, 30 directors on their epiphanies in the dark. And I always ask people what the first 
film that they saw, uh, as I always tell everyone, I saw um, Romeo and Juliet with my grandfather at the drive-in. Do you live a hus- Livia Hussey? Zeffirelli? Oh, yeah, all I remember was like nudity and the, you know, and music. And and I always feel like that formed every sort of crazy romantic idea I have about life. So, and, and I know that you've spoken before about the film you saw, but um, I wanted you to talk about it here. I don't know if it's the first film I saw. But it made an the, impression. Yeah, the movie that did literally change my life was The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, mm-hmm. which I grew up in L.A., so I saw it at the Crest Theater on Westwood Boulevard in 1958. And oh. um, I've forgotten who. But Took there's, you to see the, it? Or? Oh, I have no, my oh. mother. I, I have no yeah. idea. I think I was dropped off with somebody. <laughs> but the I was eight. And what I remember vividly was the sense of suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. You know, I've forgotten who, but there's a producer who once said, we're in the transportation business. Right. And it's true. You, the person you sit in the theater and you are to be taken somewhere else. Right. And when a movie does that and you're so involved with it, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to be emotionally involved with a story or characters, but to actually be somewhere else like the wizard of Oz or, You know, I guess Star Wars or some of the, you know, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, the movies that take you somewhere else. And if you're the right age and the right, you know, you, it, it works. And mm-hmm. that movie for me was magic. It definitely. And so you came home and you said, I want to, you know, what, what's a director? What's a. No, I asked I... my mom, I said, who, <laughs> who makes the movie? Who makes movies? And she said, which still impresses me, she said, the director. Which I'm not sure why, because we have no show business anymore. Right. And so from the time I was eight, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up was a director. So Uh that's a huge advantage um, to know what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And also I lived in L.A. And in the 50s and 60s, being a director wasn't yet chic. So it was a time where if you were a director, um, the, the generation just before me, Francis Coppola, Marty Scorsese, Brian De Palma, Spielberg, right. Lucas. Those really are Revenge of the Nerds. Right. Because when they were studying to be filmmakers, mm-hmm. it was a little odd. Peter Bogdanovich. It was genuinely not an American thing. We didn't it was the it was the French and then the British. Right. You know, Caillou du Cinema and then Sight and Sound who recognized American filmmakers, Hawks, you know, right. Hitchcock and all the Capra. You can argue and say he's British, but not Capra, Hitchcock. <laughs> right. But, but uh, George Stevens I and mean, all the great American filmmakers, mm-hmm. and there are a lot, <laughs> um, were artists, which was kind of shocking here because this, the, the, what we do is referred to as the industry. Right. It's the business. And so in real life, mm-hmm. what is a good movie? Well, in real life, a good movie is a movie that makes a lot of money. Right. Now, we all know that's not necessarily true. Good movies fail all the time, and bad movies are big hits all the time, mm-hmm. and vice versa. You know, it's not fair. But nonetheless, there's that reality. And there's, um, it's just a very strange, crazy making, schizophrenic place to be. Right. Well, I can't imagine when you're growing up. I mean, when you look at somebody like Howard Hawks, I mean, these guys seem like, you know, they shoot guns and they're like, so you're right. Somebody like, 
you know, you and Marty and Spielberg you seem like the polar opposite. Of well, because like, you know they Hawks were and all Ford these guys. And, we were the audiovisual guys. We brought the projector into the room. You, know? you were trying to get girls. Come on. Eventually, <laughs> well, you know, but they also you got to remember if you look at John Ford. Who did you say? Ford? Hawks. Hawks. You, these guys manly started. Manly men. Manly guys. They started. Not even a lot of them. Raul were not, Walsh. A lot of them were not manly. You know how he lost his eye? He was a, he was an actor, right? Wasn't he? No, a rap, he was driving in a rabbit in the desert. Oh, a rabbit went, got his eye. What? Oh, God. Yeah. I so always think it's. Eye patch. You know what it's like? It's what like. What makes those things lucky? Life of Brian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, but that's what happened. Um. My point is that these yes. guys were there for the beginning of the, you know, movies are only, what, 130 years old or mm-hmm. something? So, or I should say motion pictures now. Right. So these guys helped invent the language. Mm-hmm. We make movies based on what they did. And right. now you get, I, I don't know what it's called, but you get. Derivative? Not, well, no, because it's not just de- everything's derivative. I right. Mean, it's impossible not to be. But you have movies like. Quentin Tarantino, right. he makes movies literally about movies. Right. Will you tell There's you- no real people in there. You know, they're, they're, you know, I remember I forgot which movie, but I mean, I, I like Quentin's movies a lot, but I, some of them, I, I'm recognizing cues. Music cues. Yeah. I'm going, wait a minute, that's from Cat of Nine Tales. What the hell is that doing there? You know? Well, you had another crazy, I'm skipping all over the place, but you had a crazy experience where you actually, I mean, you know, you actually knew Hitchcock and had lunch with him. And he, I, I, the, the thought that Hitchcock actually did see Dress to Kill and then talk to you about it. I'm not sure it was Dress to Kill. It was a De Palma movie, but I'm, right. not, I'm not sure which one it was. It was the one that the ad said Hitchcockian. That's what made him angry. Right. A critic had referred to De Palma's film as Hitchcockian, and Brian mm. was, op- the, the homage is obvious. Right. Um, it's not like he's stealing. It's it's an obvious right. homage. And when I pointed it out to Hitch, he said, uh, you mean fromage? <laughs> but he was very upset because a critic referred to it as Hitchcockian. And the ads then had, you know, slashed across the, the image of the picture. Hitchcockian, in quotes, he felt he was being used. Oh, being used, I yeah. see. Well, I mean, or don't, don't they always do that in the, you know, in the movie business? Okay, I want to go back to, because I love, uh, you, you, you were working as a mailboy at Fox. And so, and I know that you got to meet George Stevens, who I, he's one of my heroes, by just like going up to him and being a film nerd and knowing your movies but so tell that story. But then I want to know about other people you met. They're all stories I've told before. I know, but I love. I love I was hearing. A, I, them. Was a, I was a mailboy at Fox. And how did you get to be a mailboy at Fox? Like, how do you get a job like I that? I was des- I, I applied to every at that in '66. You know, mm-hmm. there was Columbia. How many studios? Columbia, Fox, Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers. And then there was Orion and United Artists. And is Goldwyn still around then, or no? No, Goldwyn. The Goldwyn Studio was, right. but no, Goldwyn had passed. MGM. Um, oh, and thank you. MGM was alive and gasping. Um, you know, it was like my wife and I. Deborah. By the way, Deborah's. I think. Are you watching me in London? Apparently, this is live. We're live. Hi, Hi Deborah. I love you. Um, she's curating a big show at the uh, London Science Museum. 
that opens in 2020 on science fiction. Great. And it's not what you expect. Okay. It's, it's really extraordinary. Anyway, um, live up to that. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what I was saying. <laughs> you were talking about being on the, the different Getting studios in 1966. So I just went to every studio mm-hmm. and went to the employment office and put my name. I mean, it was a long invite, and I, and right. I got I lied. I said I was uh, good. 17. Good. I was 16. But I got to be a mailroom at 20th Century Fox. A mailroom. No, I didn't. I got, got to, to be a male boy. A male work. boy. Did you ever see the bed sitting room? Oh, I thought you were going to go Jerry Lewis. Aaron, I thought you were going to go Aaron boy. <laughs> no, they were, all right. Hey, lady. Um, I love that movie, by the way. I did, too. It's... But a lot of it rings true. Totally. As a male boy, I'll tell yeah. you. Um, anyway. You know what was great about being a male boy in 1967? Yes. yes. Reading uh, mail, fan mail? I don't know. I didn't re- well, I actually answered fan mail. Oh. I I used to uh, Raquel Welch had, was uh, she was under studio contract, not like the old days, but she made a hundred rifles. They had finished Fantastic Voyage and they were making a hundred rifles. And mm-hmm. Bedazzled was a Fox picture, so like four or five movies in a row for Fox. Um, and it was the Vietnam War was raging, and the studio would, or Raquel would get tremendous amount of fan mail from Vietnam, from right? GIs. Sure. And they would. <laughs> One of my jobs, I got pretty good. Her, I can't, I haven't done it in 50 years. But her, sig- her signature was an <laughs> R like that. It's like a Raquel. Like, whoop, yeah. Sort of. A, and they had an 8 by 10 black and white glossy of her in that red underwear from Bedazzle. Yes. Very hot. And I would sign, you know, PFC shorts or, you know, oh. Sergeant Cooper, love Raquel. Sometimes love ya, Raquel. Love it. And one of the things I did that I'm very proud of that I told Raquel Welch, Raquel Welch once, say that three times. Yeah. <laughs> um, years later, but a guy wrote to Dear Miss Welch, and he was pleading, he was desperate because he told the guys in the platoon that he knew her. And they said, Yeah. He says, Perfect. yeah, I, I met her and I know her. She's, you know. So he said, uh, can you send me something and personalize it? Or can you, because I, you know. And so <laughs> I went to wardrobe. Oh, my God. And I said, do you have any of uh, bras or brassieres of oh Raquel Welch? And they go, all right, well, so they did. They had like 30, you know. Yeah. And they brought me one. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm stealing this. Okay, we don't know about it. You know, and I went up. Yeah. And I autographed it. To, I'm trying to think of his name. He was a private. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten his name. But I signed a thing and I wrote, you know, only you know. Oh! <laughs> Raquel. And sent, we mailed it to Vietnam. You know, what is it? P.O. Uh, P.O. What's it called when you send it to a military? Uh, APO. APO. Yeah. yeah, APO. It was a. Uh, to Vietnam. That's great. And he wrote back a letter like, oh, thank you, thank you. You saved thank you. my you life. You saved my life. Yeah. Oh my that is fantastic. Personally, I love that you were so into the war effort. That's so... Uh... Well, I wasn't. <laughs> Actually, I was very much against the war effort. The, uh, and who else did you see? So, so oh, well, well, were you coolest... nursing trying to be a director at oh, this no, point? Oh, no. You really wanted I to be was, a male boy. <laughs> I was going to be a director when I grew up. Okay. So I just wanted to be near filmmaking, just there. Right. And being a mailboy, I'll tell you, at that time, 
you, I was on a hell of a lot of sets. And yeah. On the Pico lot, mm-hmm. they were finished. They they were about to start and then made Hello Dolly, um, which is one of the most shocking moments in my life. They, there was a, a thing in the in the call sheet that they were gonna they were auditioning dancers. Okay, who were called gypsies, right? And dancers for Dolly, and it was a really good gig because it was like four or five months of work, right? And <laughs> So on one of the stages, this is way before Chorus Line, on one of the stages, something like 300 dancers showed up and they'd flown in from New York and Las Vegas, from Miami, from all over these places, I mean, all over. And they were all dressed just like Chorus Line, you know, dancers. And they all had numbers pinned to them with a safety pin, one to 300. And Michael Kidd was the choreographer. And there sat Gene Kelly without a tube. Wearing a red kind of jumpsuit thing, mm-hmm. like a pimp. It was like, or an old, old Italian, you know. Right, you know, right. It's like, what? Right, Gene like a Kelly. Parisian sweet, street sweeper. I don't know. It was oh. kind of, no, it was much more Miami. Than, but oh, it was, okay. but there, with Gene Kelly, who's a god, yeah. you know, and Michael Kidd, and there was an upright piano. And a pianist, and a, one of those, you know, those things they always use as props in movies. It was a stand with a big light bulb, with yes. a little cage around it. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going, holy shit, you know, this is like <laughs> a movie. And I watched, it was brutal. And oh. he went through, Michael Kidd went through 300 dancers in, in an hour and a half. Wow. <clears throat> they would get up in groups of four. Yeah. <clears throat> and he'd say, Okay, they had a dance floor down on the stage, big empty stage. Mm. And he'd say, okay, watch this, do this. And he'd cue the pianist, and he'd do some combination of steps. Right. Different every time. And he'd say, you got it? And sometimes a dancer would say, may we see that again, Mr. Kid?" And he'd be annoyed. He'd go, all right, and he'd do it again. And he said, you got it? And if they nodded, he went, right, five, six, seven, eight. And they're like... You know, what was amazing is that some of them, every so often, someone would be perfect. Right. And he'd say, all right, you stay. The rest of you, thank you. Next. And he went through 300 people, like in an hour and a half. Wow. Sobbing people. So when I saw Chorus Line years later, I was thinking, this is good. This is accurate. Yeah. I almost made that movie. You did? Yeah, and then a terrible thing happened. <laughs> kind of wish you had. I don't know if well, Richard Attenborough. Was... Tell you the deal on that movie was uh, that show mm. was like many shows. They made they sell it to the movies, <clears throat> but only after its Broadway run. Oh, that show okay. ran. It's you know for <laughs> many years. First Broadway show I ever saw. You know where I did you see it on Broadway or at the Shakespeare? I saw it on Broadway with my grandfather Melvin Douglas. Now I'm in uh, with Sandel Bergman and the. That's I have to say that your grandfather's Melvin Douglas is the coolest thing. Oh, thank you. Melvin Douglas is my idea of a guy who had an amazing, perfect, perfect career. He went from very handsome, debonair, leading man. Yes. All the way through, never changing anything, and just you know, being his performance, whatever it was, he's amazing, Billy Bud. But but going all the way through mm-hmm. until he was old, old. Yeah, transition. Playing old. Ne- he wasn't like when he was in his sixties. He wasn't like Gary Cooper, or Clark Gable, or yeah. you know, all the guys 
Tyro, you know, they're all yeah. playing like opposite Audrey Hepburn. No, it's uh, when you see him in a movie like The Candidate, you cannot believe that this is the same guy, you know, from the Nachka. From the Nachka. And I want to get to Ralph Bellamy. I love, loved. We're, Ralph I'm skipping all over the place, but you know, my grandfather was in uh, a company called the Jesse Bond. I'm always plugging them. His first entree into show business was in Wisconsin, and they were the the uh, they were cast out of New York. You know, uh, I believe it or not, the original David Belasco of the Belasco Theater wow. sent them out on tour, and they were in the Jesse Bonestell Players, and it was he, uh, Ralph Bellamy, and Gail Sondergaard were all in this company. Wow! And uh, so I, after my grandfather passed away, I I almost brought it. I forgot we're all we're all sharing things but he, Ralph Bellamy wrote me the most beautiful letter I mean what a kind kind man I spoke to him a couple times on the phone but Ralph Bellamy was everything you want him to be right he was he was a mensch he was a much better actor than people give him credit for because they think of old Ralph Bellamy and he's either FDR or the cranky guy in trading places or whatever he is but you remember look at him in uh the awful truth. Yeah, I mean he's brilliant. Or Rosemary's Baby. Oh, Rosemary's Baby. Or you know, Forget I mean, it. he just had an extraordinary career. And uh, when I made Trading Places, talking to Ralph and Don, you know, the AD would go, "We're ready, John." Oh, so, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> so tell me more about Lubitsch. You know, <laughs> that was Don. You know. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine. All right, well, I'm going to get to that because that 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 to me is so exciting. All right, so you went from being that, then you got to work. No, what I was going to say about. Being a mailboy, though, because yes. I was there for a year. Then I went left to work on a movie called Catch-22. I was only on that movie for three weeks and quit. I was on the second unit. Uh-huh. A wonderful man named Andrew Marton. Who uh, oh, my God, John. Bundy. Bundy Marton. How do you we're, know Bundy? This is another crazy, we're live on the air. That My grandfather, this is a long family friend, my my grandfather, because my grandmother was in politics. And so during- Helen Gagan Douglas, yes. you could say so. So during the, when my- She's also she who must be obeyed. That's by the true. Way. <laughs> But my grandfather. I thought it was my wife, but it was Helen Hagen Douglas. <laughs> no, my grandfather got Bundy Marton. His he got his family out of Hungary during the war, and Bundy's sister went to New York. She became a Lutzy. She became yeah, very famous uh, editor. These are uh, and their family no, she, friends. No, she's not an editor. She became like a. It has something to do with books, right? Playwright. She represented theatrical rights for playwrights. She had the Molnar estate, and if you yes. know who Molnar was, he wrote everything. I right. Mean, you know, and then she represented um, Neil Simon, a lot right. of big writers. Yes. Internationally, not yes. the but internationally, like if you wanted to put on whatever show, you would deal with her, and and her, the business is still run right. by her niece Bundy's daughter Tonda. Yes. yes. You and, know, this is amazing. That yeah, Bundy are- is my mentor and the guy who gave me my big break oh my god this is amazing i can't believe so we, you have have you you've never seen into the night have you oh of course i have yeah. bundy's in it yes i i i i didn't recognize him he was old yeah being well later on he was living in hungary and then his her we were gonna go into a whole maritime before the war he bundy yeah because but, bundy was here for the war well, his family. He got it. My, my grandfather secured his family coming, you know, c- getting out of Hungary. Wow, I don't know that. That's yeah. 
and 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 there's a nephew named Andrew Marton, who's a famous Hungarian film director. And in the '80s, when they were behind the Iron Curtain, my my brother and I went and stayed with them, and we we met Bundy for the first time. Bundy told you know the first line. Of, Bundy told you, but the first line of every Hungarian recipe: <laughs> steal a chicken. <laughs> yes, that's something my grandfather would say too. My grandfather was crazy about Hungarians. Hungarians. Who are the really the Hungarians chicken. and Polish are the people who really founded Hollywood? But the uh, so the, the, the thing about Hungarians though, there's also a Hungarian is someone who comes into a revolving door behind you and exits in front of you. <laughs> My grandfather always used to say too, "Hegeshegala," which means it's like a you know a cheers kind oh, of. Oh, okay, a, I don't know, you know Hegeshegala. I don't see. It could be Hungarian, could be Yiddish. You never know. But that's it's, true. That's know. true. So anyway, Bundy Martin, you're in the Catch Twenty Two. Bundy, Bundy Martin is most famous, unfortunately, but most famous for directing the Chariot Race in Ben Hur. Yes, he became. He Pretty actually good. had made many movies, starting at Ufa and then in Hollywood. He was mm-hmm. at MGM for like forty five, fifty years, and he made movies like Green Fire with Grace Kelly and. Gosh, what are, you know, King Solomon's Mines with Stuart Granger. But he became known as a second unit director. Right. And so he, uh, Billy Wilder said that he had a, uh, making a movie about this lecherous um, advertising guy. And there's a scene where he chases the secretary around the desk. Mm-hmm. So he'd bring in Bundy to shoot that. <laughs> you know, Bundy became famous as an action director. Which is kind of weird because in one, it kept him working until his 70s. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was very frustrating for him. Right. Because, you know, they'd go, big battle scene. He directed the sea battles and all the battles in Cleopatra. Right. You know, he directed, God, all those. Uh, oh, famous army. 55 days at Peking. Yeah. It says Nick Ray. He was drunk the whole movie. Bundy directed <laughs> it. Uh, so many movies. And he got me a job on Catch-22 on the second unit. Now, Catch-22-1 is a wonderful movie that still hasn't gotten the credit it should. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out and bombed, mainly, I think, because of M.A.S.H. It was, they were, but it's, it's amazing. The photography, Watkins, who was a brilliant, crazy person. And unbe- do you know who's in it? I mean, the cast is like, oh, Orson my God. Wells, Alan Arkin, There's a scene Tony with Perkins. Bob Newhart. Yeah, Bob Newhart. Where it's one take. Watch it. It's eight minutes. Martin Balsam. Everybody. Yeah. John Voight, one of his John first Voight. movies. Yeah. I mean, everybody's in that movie. Um, anyway, so I, I was, this is in uh, San Carlos, Mex- uh, Baja. Mm-hmm. And now it looks like Miami because Paramount for Catch-22 built a runway. <laughs> and it was just nothing there. It was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. You see it really well in Catch-22. Now yeah. it's like, you know, Cabo yeah. San Lucas. You know, like. Anyway, um, when Paramount made that movie, they had like the fifth largest air force in the world. Uh-huh. And those B-25s, they're real. Those are real planes <laughs> from the Confederate Air Force, and they, they were held together with gaffer tape and rubber bands. Mm. And we would, if you look at that movie, the flying stuff, all real and amazing. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the belly of one of those planes for some of it. I I couldn't stand it because after flying, like how they fought a war, I don't know. They vibrate like this. So 
after two hours and you'd come down, your jaws would ache and your nipples would hurt from shaking. Yeah. And you, my, here's my job. Bandero es roja. <laughs> Bandero es verde. You know, that was, that was my job. And down there, right. there's Orson Welles and Art Garfunkel <laughs> and Alan Arkin and all these Mike Nichols and just, you know, all these amazing people down there. Right. And I'm up here with oil leaking on me and this airplane <laughs> going like this. And I hated it. And I quit and went back to the mailroom. Um, but then I, Bundy got me the job on, he said, if you show up in Yugoslavia, yeah. maybe I can give you a job on, on Kelly's Heroes. And that's the movie that really launched. Incredible. But to finish my, I have to just tell you, yes. you would have loved it. Being at the studio in 1966, 67, wow. 68. I'm the- Fox, Picolot, Irwin Allen made all his shows there. So mm-hmm. Land of the Giants, Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which meant there were always lobster men or some <laughs> ridiculous robot creatures walking around. They, were, they made Beneath the Planet of the Apes while I was there. George Cukor made a movie called Justine that I don't know anyone who's ever seen. Yeah, I don't know. Anuka Me, Michael York, I don't uh-huh. know, uh, Dirk Bogard. I've wow. never seen it myself. Okay. It's part of the Alexander tri- Alexandra trilogy. Mm-hmm. But Justine shot mostly in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then they came back to L.A. to do pickups and the major transvestite ball. <laughs> okay. And one of the great moments of my life was coming around stage 17 and seeing at one long table, 25, 30 gorillas and 15 chimps having lunch. And at the next long table, <laughs> about 50 big guys all in drag having lunch with wigs. and all. It was like I thought, Hollywood. It, oh, yeah. it was like when you see movies and they have studios. Right. Cowboys and... There was so Centurion. much, so much. I got to meet, you know, I, I really liked Bruce Lee. There was, there was the last season of Green Hornet, and nobody gave a fuck about Bruce Lee. Right. Um, but he had a a punching bag. These are obnoxious stories, but you're... No, I love it. He had a punching bag on the side of a stage, mm-hmm. maybe 12 feet off the ground, you know, like a box. And Bruce, who was tiny, and literally like a cat, he would go... You watching? Okay. And then they go, and like leap in the air sideways, kick the bag three times, bam, 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 and land on his feet like, uh-huh. like that. And you went, <laughs> it was like Michael Jordan. Do you ever see Michael Jordan play? He literally Air Jordan. You, you'd see him fly. And right. you think, how does he, that was like Bruce Lee. And he was very nice. Mm-hmm. And every Thursday, Steve McQueen and James Coburn would come for their karate lesson from Bruce, and everyone would go crazy because it was Steve yeah. McQueen and Coburn. I would go, I would go totally. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you, at this stage in the 60s, were you it's at in all... In the last half of the 60s. In the last half of the 60s. This is like the height of the music scene in L.A. Were you oh ever God. involved? Were you involved? I was at the... Because ta- you're such a music When person. I was in junior high, I was at the Tammy show. You were? I'm in the audience. And you know who's sitting next to me? Who? David Cassidy. <laughs> who also went to Emerson Junior High. Wow. And Emerson Junior High, A9, B9, I was in the eighth grade. And uh-huh. in the ninth grade, and everybody was pissed off, was Bonnie Raitt. And she she won, but she sang with John Raitt. So she cheated. Yeah, so everyone was like, <laughs> she brings in a Broadway ringer. Like, what the fuck? It seems very L.A., though. It seems yeah. like... 
like that that would kind of happen. So you were, so did you went, you were in the periphery. One of the producers of the Tammy show's mm-hmm. daughter went to Emerson. Mm-hmm. So the audience, they did it twice, one day and then they did it second. I was at both. And the audience was Emerson Junior High. There was the seventh and eighth grade, oh. and then the ninth grade, and I think the tenth grade of uni. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's who all those screaming kids are, including me in there. Right. And I, it was the first time I ever saw James Brown. And then I worked with James a lot. But if you look at the Tammy show, which you can get on DVD wherever I'm looking, that is the best film performance of James Brown, I think. Crazy. I love James Brown. I met him a couple times. It just... Unbelievable. The um, so any so I wanted to get to the music a little bit just because one in, in where you start to talk about all your movies and but one of the things that I always love about your movies that nobody ever asks you about is you have all these amazing musical sequences and dance numbers. Do you know what's interesting is people always I am now mostly referred to as a master of horror, and I'm mostly offered horror films, and I've made a couple, right? You know, but I've made all these movies, and, and nobody Musicals. ever thinks of me for music. I made Thriller, for fuck's sake, you know? <laughs> nobody ever thinks of me for music, and I have had tons of musical numbers. Unbelievable. Uh, so oh, I wanna, well. So I want to go in, I mean, listen, even starting with Animal House, just to... why? Oh, you mean Shout? Yes. That's... That's kind of stretching it to be a musical number. It is a performance number. I have to say, it is an effervescent, completely realized, really, really fun musical sequence. Uh, And seeing it again in a big screen, uh, you know. You want to hear a bit of trivia about that? Absolutely. So the actor who played Dwayne, I'm sorry, Otis Day, Otis Day in the Nights, is named... Dwayne Jesse, and he was a very good actor. He was in Car Wash and Bingo Long. Mm-hmm. He was in a cool, I think, I don't know, he was in a bunch of movies. Uh-huh. Um, I think he's in Blue Collar. I mean, he's a really good actor. Right. And I cast him to be that guy, Otis Day, so he he's wearing a wig. But it, it was a very, very, very low-budget movie. Yeah. So they wouldn't let me hire the, the knights, the other guys. He's not singing in the movie. That's a... I think named Mark Davis. I've forgotten his name. He was a session guy. We recorded that in L.A. And then we needed the Knights. You know, we needed the backup players. So we put an ad in the University of Oregon's, whatever it's called, the Daily Quack or something, put it in the the newspaper saying, African-American males who can play the bass, the drums, you know, (laughs) uh, there's a good job that pays well. And so... Literally, four guys showed up. <laughs> and, and it turns out, you know, that was Eugene, Oregon in 1978 or 77. Right. So, like, when we did the Black Bar, we had to bus extras in from Portland. <laughs> Not a lot of black folk. Progressive. Yeah. But anyway, but the, the, the people, the students, they were all University of Oregon students. Yes. And we paid them each. They made money. They made good money. But remember, we paid them each $500 extra if they would straighten their hair. So they have conks. They went through the, if you ever read Autobiography of Malcolm X, there's yeah. a very vivid sequence in that book. And if you haven't, you should. Yeah. Anyway, um, 25 or 30 years after I made the movie, mm-hmm. somebody said to me, how did you get Robert Cray to be in your movie? Robert Cray's not in my movie. Yes, he is. 
He is. He's, he's in Otis Day. He's the Knights. Yeah. He was wow. a student at the University of Oregon. Oh, that's funny. Isn't that amazing? So yeah. I take full credit for his career. I want to go back because I'm going to get more into Animal House. But uh, the first movie you saw, Kentucky Fried Movie, that's the movie my grandmother dragged me out of. You know, I wouldn't. I was too. I wanted to see it. It's vulgar. Because I, well, I did grow up with the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Which was great. Which was my first, again, after Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and 2,000-Year-Old Man, then I kind of discovered National Lampoon. And um, it, and I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the roots of American humor, which SNL gets a lot of the credit for it. But no. We, but which it's actually first of all, stemmed S- from National well, Lampoon. No, no, that's not really true either. All people are always okay, given... Disagree cr- with me. But people are always given credit to people, like David Letterman, who mm-hmm. I enjoy David Letterman. He reinvented Late Night. No, he didn't. He was just doing Steve Allen. Right. You know, I mean, no, he didn't. He And he even did stupid pet tricks, and he did everything he did, Steve Allen did first. And I've been... Fa- and a lot of... Comedy, you can't say that that's the beginning of this and this is that. You can in stand-up. Uh-huh. But in terms of just comedy, right? you know, it's it's fascinating. It's like... I feel like I really disagree with you. Just- Saturday Night Live, because of television, it didn't have the impact that your show of shows had. Oh, oh I totally agree. And, and wait a minute. And Saturday Night Live, Lauren Michaels... Who I like. I made a movie once for Lauren, Three Amigos. But when he cast that show, everyone in it came from, if not from Second City, then from the National Lampoon. And had all been performing for years. Mm-hmm. And he just cherry-picked these great well, talents. That's, isn't that kind of what I said? That that no, was- you said Saturday Night Live, but really Lampoon? Before Lampoon... There was a lot going on. Have you ever heard of the committee in San Francisco? Of course, Alan Arkin and Elaine May. No, that's Chicago. Oh, it is? That's Second City. Okay. And the company's been in Chicago. The committee is Fred Willard. Fred Willard, uh, Howard Hessman, Carl Gottlieb. I've redeemed myself. Carl Gottlieb. I'm trying to think who else. But uh, the committee in San Francisco, there was Second City in Chicago way before, you know, obviously Warts All and Lenny Bruce. And they're, they're so, the Borscht Belt comics and the Catskill comics and the... It's just, it's this continuum of comedy. It's still funny when someone falls down. I guess my point, my labored point was that it went from situational comedy, like your show of shows, to more a political bent. That that was Remember all. that was the year that was? Uh, that I don't know. That I, that David Frost was the host? Tom Lair? The way I only got one channel growing up, which was CBS. Oh my God, Tom Lehrer is, is was a Harvard mathematics professor okay. who wrote brilliant songs. Yes, I do know two Tom Lehrer. Okay, well he was he wrote a political song every week on that was the week that was, <laughs> and in fact Tom Lehrer, who was very successful and quite wonderful, um, he retired when Henry Kissinger received the Nobel Peace Prize because he said satire is dead. You can't. How do you? Yeah, and it's true. It's like President Trump. Did you see that trailer he made for Kim? You should go online. You can't. You can't. You can't make You're that speechless. shit up. You're no, spe- I know. It's like the the really clever, you know, Dolly Parton or Liberace. There's certain a little richer certain characters who just said, "Go ahead, make fun of me." Right. You can't. 
because right. I'm way ahead of you. You know, Trump's there, but with no knowledge of it. And meanwhile, we all merely go to hell. Okay, on that note, <laughs> what I'm going to do is we're going to take a break from our live edition. Uh, we're Was gonna, that 45 minutes? We're going to pause. We didn't talk about this. Oh, we're coming back. We're going to come back. But, but we're gonna, our audience is going to have to wait a week. We're, yeah, we're going to do – we're going to get into all your movies that, uh, oh. uh, as we as we come back. But we're going to take a, a brief break, everyone, and uh, tune in next week and hear more of uh, John Lindis. See you guys the, next time. I love you, Deborah. Of, a beginning summer wrap-up. So, so we'll see you we'll guys next week. <laughs>